Hi, and welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, August 22nd, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I know there was plenty to do around the state. If you went up to Santa Fe for the Indian market, I hope you had a good time. It was the 100th Santa Fe Indian market, and I know that's a really cool event. In Albuquerque, the Westside Summerfest was a ton of fun. There are some great local bands out there right now. My wife and I listened to a whole set from the Hooks and the Huckleberries. They're kind of a country Americana genre. I guess that's where they fall. Really a cool sound, though, and they definitely have an Albuquerque feel. I also loved listening to Alex Mariel. He's from Santa Fe, and he plays some fantastic blues guitar. So if you're interested, check out either of those two local artists if you have some time this Monday. Otherwise, I hope your week is off to a great start. Now, let's get to the headlines impacting people in New Mexico right now. A temporary water treatment facility in Las Vegas, New Mexico should be ready next week if all goes to plan. The city's water supply has been in jeopardy for weeks now, as rains have pushed ash and wildfire debris into surrounding streams and rivers. Mayor Louis Trujillo declared a state of emergency last month to free up money for this temporary water treatment system. Once installed, it will allow water from a nearby lake to be used to supplement supplies. According to reporting from the Associated Press, that system will be capable of treating about 1.5 million gallons a day. That's about what the city consumes daily. Mayor Trujillo says a permanent treatment system on the river could cost more than $100 million. There aren't any firm plans to design or build a system like that at this point. The largest wildfire in the history of New Mexico is now 100% contained. Weeks of monsoon rains have helped control the flames from the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire. Crews have also been monitoring the perimeter, and in a press release, the U.S. Forest Service says that, quote, fire managers have high confidence there are no remaining heat sources and no additional growth will occur, end quote. Right now, more than 341,735 acres have burned in the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire. Five of New Mexico's 26 county jails and detention centers are less than half staffed. Otero County Attorney R.B. Nichols tells the Associated Press that the Otero County Detention Center in Alamogordo reached a critical point in the last few weeks when there weren't enough officers to walk the floor. Five nearby facilities are stepping up to take some of those inmates in. As of August 1st, 14 county jails have staff vacancy rates above 20%. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham made a big announcement late last week that solidifies New Mexico's footprint in the film industry. The California-based film company 828 Productions will relocate its headquarters to Las Cruces. 828 will become the state's third film partner, along with Netflix and NBC Universal. According to the governor, 828 Productions plans to invest $75 million to build a 300,000-square-foot studio and a 20-acre backlot over the next six years. That project is estimated to create somewhere around 100 high-paying jobs in Las Cruces. 828 Productions has already bought a 7,500-square-foot office building in downtown Las Cruces. The state is pledging about $3 million to the project from the Local Economic Development Act. If you missed our show last week on New Mexico PBS, we had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time talking about the impacts of alcohol in New Mexico. Our friends at New Mexico In-Depth put that issue into the spotlight earlier this month with their seven-part series, Blind Drunk. 
Independent journalist Ted Alcorn wrote all seven pieces with subtopics ranging from the problem as it stands broadly to drunk driving, alcohol's impact on violent crime, stereotypes in alcohol abuse, failings in our state's public policy, and the overarching issue of addiction and how it's treated. Now, on our show this past week, we aired two excerpts from a larger conversation between Gene and a panel of experts. This is the entire discussion, so you're going to get some exclusive content on the podcast this week. The hope is this will start smaller conversations among the people who hear it, and maybe this can create some movement in how we understand and address the substance abuse issue. Here's Gene. Hello, everyone. We're joined by Ted Alcorn today. He's a writer and an independent journalist who did a great deal of work on this project. We also have Dr. Camilla Venner. She's an associate professor of clinical psychology at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Jenny Wei, an internal medicine physician at Gallup Indian Medical Center and State Representative Joanne Ferrari for Doña Ana County. Thank you all for joining us for this important discussion. We want to follow this very closely here at New Mexico PBS, and we thank you for your time today. Ted, let me start with you, of course. You wrote an article, wrote this, each article in a seven-part series, in case folks have not seen this yet, on alcohol use and misuse here in New Mexico. Can you start by explaining how this project came about, and what did you think this, why did you think this uh, issue deserved this kind of coverage? Well, about a year ago, New Mexico and Death asked me to look into a story on alcohol. They had some suspicions that the mortality we were seeing for COVID was connected to alcohol use in the state. Mm -hmm. But it didn't take long for me to notice uh, some of the, the basic factors that make alcohol really stand out. New Mexico has uh, not only the highest rate of alcohol-related deaths in the country, we have the highest rate head and shoulders over every other state. And the more I learned, the more I felt like uh, this sort of catastrophe that was happening in plain sight was the result of a lot of misconceptions that we have about how alcohol affects our population, what we can do about it. Mm -hmm. And so as, as the reporting went on, I spoke to more and more people and collected data. It, it felt like uh, it needed a lot of space to grow. Um, so in the end, as you said, it became a seven-part series, and I, I interviewed over 150 people for it. And um, you know, I think we came to some conclusions uh, that surprised even me. Mm -hmm. One of those conclusions, by the way, in the, the first in the series is brilliantly titled An Emergency Hiding in Plain Sight. Very apt title there. Kind of sets the stage with this issue in, we're facing in New Mexico. Let me ask you this. Through your research, you found drinking kills New Mexicans at a much higher rate than anywhere else in the country. The conclusion reaches that we failed to address this crisis in part because we've misunderstood it. What, what's been the big misunderstanding in your research? Well, there's been a few misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. I think the first one um, growing up in Albuquerque in the 1990s was that I was you know, both aware of the tremendous problem of DWI in our state, but mm -hmm. also um, buffeted by the policy prescriptions that we were starting to put in place because at that point our state really made a collective and systematic and sustained effort to reduce DWI. And I think that that, that has had numerous benefits. Uh, we brought down the rates of uh, crash fatalities uh, a lot, mm -hmm. but we kind of missed the forest for the trees because when you look at alcohol-related deaths nowadays, DWIs only account for about one in 10 of them. So nine in 10 of alcohol-related deaths in the state are, are occurring mm -hmm. elsewhere. We overlook the role that alcohol plays in violence. Uh, as it turns out, you know, we have course, widespread shared concerns about having a safer state. Our elected officials are talking about it. What they don't often say is that 40% of people who die by homicide in the state died with alcohol in their blood. Mm -hmm. 
as did 30% of people who die by suicide. So, so alcohol is the most common intoxicant in violence in New Mexico. Mm. Those are the kind of the kind of blind spots, I think, that have kept us from addressing this issue head on. Good points there. I want to bring in Dr. Jenny Wei on this issue. Um, doctor, how should we approach this clearly life-threatening, uh, you know, issue? And what do we need to do to get a better understanding as New Mexicans about the depth of the problem? I think the main important thing is that, you know, alcohol use disorders, people who struggle with alcohol use disorders, it's a multifactorial cause, you know, and I think because of that, there are a lot of differing preferences as to how uh, people want to be treated, mm -hmm. um, differing main underlying causes result in different types of treatment options. So for example, I think a lot of people struggle with uh, I work at the Gallup Indian Medical Center who serves primarily Native Americans who suffer from depression, anxiety, PTSD. A lot of people who struggle with alcohol use disorders also have comorbid mental health disorders. And it's important to treat all of those. Right. Um, and it's important to treat, you know, I think what we say a lot in addiction medicine is that every door is the right door, whether it's through my primary care clinic, whether it's through when they get admitted to the hospital in the intensive care unit after a motor vehicle accident or broken bones, or whether it's through the emergency department, we need to make sure that in every possible door that people are entering, that there are treatment options available that we offer them in the emergency department when they're admitted to the hospital here and when I see them in the primary care setting. I think too often as a as primary care doctors, we feel we, we treat the 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 complications of alcohol use disorders, like liver disease, um, like the broken bone that happened, at the, or you know the motor vehicle accident um, injuries, mm -hmm. but we don't really under treat the underlying cause of all of these problems in the first place, which of course is their alcohol use disorder. And given the extent of the problem, we cannot just put that on behavioral health specialists, psychiatrists. We as primary care providers need to be taking ownership of this as well, given how severely under-resourced our behavioral health departments are in in the state. And so I very much believe that uh, as a general internal medicine provider, family medicine provider, general surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, all of us need to be able to treat alcohol use disorders and not just uh, rely on the non-existent uh, behavioral health department that may not be able to get an appointment for many, many months. Mm. If, I, if I may, I just wanted mm -hmm. to put that in context too, because the, the state has looked at the scale of untreated substance use in the state. Mm -hmm. And um, we talk, of course, a lot about the state's struggles with opiates, fentanyl, methamphetamines, but alcohol is the biggest untreated substance use problem in New Mexico. There are 73,000 people who are estimated to have an alcohol disorder who aren't getting treated. And that's more than people with disorders of, for all other substances combined. So it shows that there's a big opportunity for the, for the care that Dr. Ways mentioned. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you got that in, that's an important point. Dr. Venner, um, you know, interestingly, when I w reading the series, it really struck me how screening by docs could be so impactful here. It, it just, it, wh why is this not really kind of taking root just a little bit with a little bit more vigor inside medical circles? I'm curious your opinion on that. Well, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a clinical psychologist, but mm -hmm. what my understanding, uh, doctors have a lot to do in their 12 minutes or 15 minutes that they have Fair with enough. patients. 
-hmm. Um, So it can be, um, you know, an issue of time. There's also an issue of um, training, not a lot of training in medical school and residencies focus on addiction for as much as it shows up in clinics, they don't get that much training. Um, So I think there can be a self-efficacy piece where they're not really entirely sure um, what to do if if the patient does screen positive in a slight brief intervention in a compassionate way um, to talk about, you know, um, what are they thinking? Here's a, you know, what we're seeing. What do you think about that? And having a nice conversation and having an open door, like Jenny Way says, um, every door is right. Um, so I think there's a lot more we can do for training mm-hmm. medical students and um, helping um, doctors feel, you know, more self-efficacy like Dr. Wayfield. So I think there's a lot we can do to help that situation. Mm-hmm. Representative, uh, just on that oh, point, please, absolutely. Um, I'd just like to add that, you know, back in the 90s when we passed the major legislation to, you know, combat uh, DWI, um, we did consider the behavioral health problems of it too, um, but uh, didn't really reach as far as we um, wanted to. Um, but something that came out from them was to somehow incentivize um, doctors uh, by every time that they uh, do the uh, SAMHSA uh, screening and make it so that you know we can incentivize them to go ahead and do that and help their patients. Interesting. Um, Representative, let me stay with you on this. I mean, obviously we had a, the awful news with the parade and gallop with the injuries suffered by somebody who appeared to be in, impaired behind the wheel and just an awful situation when the law enforcement approached the vehicle that just took off. Does it make it harder when we have situations like that to, or does it actually help move things along in a certain way? How, how do you see that as an rep, elected representative? Well, um I know that um, Ted has been working on this series for a long time, since probably the beginning of the year at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and like in the 90s, when we were starting to look at um, the overall package of you know DWI uh, changes that we needed, um, the Cravens crash yes. um, tragedy happened. And um, just as we were getting ready to go to the legislature, uh, Nadine Milford and her husband Bob became advocates for the change that we needed. Mm-hmm. So um, I hope it brings the attention that we need to motivate um, the what we you know should start. Like the governor immediately setting up a task force with legislators and uh, and all of the experts such as Dr. Way and um, Miss um, Bummer, and um, we need to make sure that we use scientific, evidence-based uh, approaches again to revitalize the not just DWI, the enforcement and helping the victims and the and preventing the consequences, but overall for alcohol-related deaths. And this is really important um, because I think, as Ted pointed out, that. Um, adverse childhood experiences are uh, usually related to someone in the family for domestic violence, for right. child and neglect and abuse. Um, all of these different things seem to coalesce around the um, alcohol abuse, and uh, we need to hit, uh, you know, hit it head on. Mm-hmm. 
Ted, I want to ask you about something that I think a lot of folks would find very interesting outside of political circles, and that is taxing alcohol and what it does to lessen the amount of drinking going on out there. If you would, in general terms, sort of lay out the framework of what that is and what you uh, discovered in your research as well. Well, historically, I think the public and lawmakers have often tended to think of alcohol taxes as a revenue raiser. Mm-hmm. We, in, in our state and in many other states, we impose a very small excise tax on alcohol. And when you break it down to, to the amount per standard drink, we're talking about a few pennies. Um, but those pennies add up because we drink a lot and this, it, it raises about $50 million a year for the state. But what many people have overlooked is the fact that the taxes really are also a tool of public policy because they affect the price of the alcohol that's sold. And um, it's pretty clear that when the state imposes a tax on these items, the distributors or wholesalers pass that tax on to consumers. And so it artificially makes the substance a little bit more expensive. And this is important because the basic economic principles of supply and demand say that when you raise taxes a little bit, you reduce demand some. And in this case, you particularly uh, reduce demand by young people who don't have necessarily as much access to cash and people that are really exposed to the price increases because they're consuming a lot of alcohol. And so uh, the research has gone on over many years and in many states. And on my read of it all, it seemed pretty definitive that when you raise alcohol taxes, there's a reduction in, in consumption and that you see a lot of reductions in the harms that alcohol can have. You see reductions in DWI. You see reductions in, in cirrhosis, some of the chronic conditions associated with alcohol. Um, so, you know, we know that this policy measure is effective. We see uh, lawmakers really neglecting it, though. Over the last 30 years, not only have we left alcohol taxes at their same rate, we've allowed inflation to eat away at them because yeah. we, we tax alcohol. This is kind of subtle, but we tax alcohol by the volume that is sold, not by its price. Mm-hmm. So that means a $6 pack of Budweiser 20 years ago has the same tax on it as a $12 pack of Budweiser has today. So uh, all told, you know, we're kind of turning our back on one of the most important measures to addressing excessive alcohol use. Um, and that's not only true in New Mexico, that's true across the country. Mm-hmm. Representative, Absolutely. please, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, That's all true, and uh, especially to prevent underage drinking, um, because if the younger you are when you start to drink, the more likely you are to become uh, a lifelong abuser of alcohol and see those effects. In 2017, um, we had a group that was trying to um, address that and raise the tax, I think it was a quarter a drink. And we need to kind of change that a little bit and come back to trying to make it a percentage so that we don't have to um, have inflation or different things change the effectiveness of raising uh, the tax Mm -hmm. and the deterrent effect that it has that is so um, proven to be successful. Mm -hmm. Internationally, it's being done overseas, it's being done here, it's just... Maybe it's just our time at some point, uh, Representative, we really want to get after this. Dr. Way, I've got a question for you. Part three of the series is entitled Poisonous Myths, Stereotypes About Alcohol and Native People. Uh, this, I think it was probably one of the more fascinating parts of the whole seven-part series in that these perceptions about Native people are actually quite wrong, uh, that, we, that we, even amongst Native folks themselves. You work in Gallup. I'm, I'm curious what, that's, what you know, your sense of that and how we get past a lot of that uh, perception problem. 
we certainly see that alcohol affects our population to a high degree. You know, mm -hmm. we certainly see that the percentage of uh, those that suffer that have alcohol-related deaths are higher in our populations here. Mm -hmm. I think there are perhaps some of the misperception are some of the causes for that. You know, it's, as I mentioned before, they really are multifactorial. Um, there's a lot of things that are, you know, if you look at um, the social vulnerability index, which is the something that the CDC puts out that has 15 factors that determine the social vulnerability of a certain community. Um, McKinley County, not surprisingly, has the highest rates of social vulnerability. You know, essentially right. any uh, thing that puts them at risk for not being able to handle certain things, say like COVID, for example which is why we really suffered uh, some challenges with COVID in our, in our area here of the state. So for example, people who live multi-generationally, people who live uh, in higher levels of poverty, um, and lower levels of education, all of these things contribute. Um, in addition to some of the historical trauma that is not even incorporated into these 15 social uh, vulnerability risk factors, um, historical trauma of our, our Native American communities mm -hmm. and those suffering from depression, anxiety, PTSD. So I think it's so important uh, that we continue to address all of these factors and not just focus on one or two that we may think um, are the main reasons why people struggle with alcohol use disorders. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Mr. Alcorn did a great job in highlighting this and saying that even if you took away all Native Americans um, as part of the statistics, the state would still have the highest rates of alcohol-related deaths, yep. um, even among other populations, other other groups. So I think it's important that it's not a Native American, not a Native American population, uh, problem it's a problem across the state mm -hmm. um, with a lot of the a lot of the the multi multiple things that we need to address it's not just going to be one answer which is why every door is the right door not just into the medical community but into the whole state you know of addressing taxes address addressing um, other public health policies in addition to making it easier for providers to treat um, in the hospital as well mm -hmm. dr Vander absolutely Go ahead, uh, Dr. Wayne. I absolutely agree with Dr. Venner that we in, in the medical community are not trained, you know, unless you go into specialty fields like behavioral health or addiction medicine or psychiatry. And um, it, given the extent and prevalence of the problem, uh, it should be a part of everybody's, of everybody's medical training, especially here. Yeah, Dr. Can Venner, please do pick in? up on that, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, just two more things. I love that, um, you know, how complex it is. There's um, the other large misconception is that Native Americans have some sort of biological predisposition to an alcohol use disorder, or substance use disorder, um, and there's no scientific evidence of that. The, our metabolism rates are the same. Our genetics are the same. We have the same vulnerabilities. We do end up with higher rates of alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder more broadly. Um, but it's due to these other factors, which we might call social determinants of health, like high poverty, um, low formal education, unsafe neighborhoods, you know, not access, food deserts, things mm -hmm. like that, um, systemic racism, discrimination, all of those kinds of things. So there's a balance of higher rates of substance use disorders and higher rates of abstinence from alcohol. So we have some of the highest rates of not drinking any alcohol um, compared to all other races, especially in the past month. That would be news to most people, I think. That's, that's interesting to have that out there. Um, I'm interested, uh, Dr. Venner, in, could you spend a minute or so talking about ASAP and the work at, at UNM? I, I think it's a very interesting program. I was particularly interested in the, in the fifth part of the series in the man that, that was highlighted, what was his name? Uh, I forgot his name, uh, Steve. 
that I found very interesting. So what is ASAP? What does it do and who is it for? I'm wondering if Jenny might be the better. Or sure. not, I'm sorry, you're not on North Campus. Um, so it is. An well, I can launch oh, in go there. Ahead. Thank you. That'll work. It's because I know Dr. Benner works around the state, but the, the UNM um, Addiction and Substance Abuse Program uh, is, you know, it's their uh, one of their largest uh, facilities for offering, you know, some of the sort of gold standard treatment for alcohol in the state. Um, I, I met a number of patients who were very successful there. Uh, in the case of the one you mentioned, Steve Harbin, the obstacle wasn't, um, you know, getting good treatment once he'd arrived there. It was uh, getting attention from his primary care medical provider to recognize that he had an alcohol use disorder and to, to counsel and refer him to that kind of treatment. Um, but I know that different different patients have different needs, and Dr. Venner, I know, has um, has looked at a lot of this sort of different uh, different needs that different populations in the state might have for this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you wanted to add anything on, on the traditional kind of practices that you looked into. Oh, yes. Thank you. So another um, a major role that I have is trying to bring evidence-based treatments and practices to American Indian Alaska Native communities, programs, and clinics. And But mostly they're not interested in them if they're not unadapted if they're not adapted, sorry. So some of the cultural adaptations is involve bringing indigenous science and wisdom to the table. So looking at things more holistically, sort of like what Jenny Way is saying, not just a biological issue, not just a psychological issue, but there's social determinants. And then especially spirituality is left out mm -hmm. in all of our evidence-based treatments. So it's it's not that they ca it can't be included, but it's not explicitly included. And so, um, you know, bringing some of the strengths of culture and um, spirituality, um, traditional healing practices, um, all of those things. And I think all of these cultural adaptations actually make the treatments better for everyone, kind mm -hmm. of more humane, more uh, relational, um, and bringing in that spirituality because the vast majority of our U.S. population uh, believe in some sort of level of spirituality. So it's, yep. that's another disconnect between um you know, the Western science and our licensed providers and the general public. That's an important point there as well. I appreciate that. Dr. Wei, I'm curious, there's a, I'm forgetting the name of the drug that uh, combats cravings. I'm curious why, or, or maybe a better way to say it or ask this, is there some momentum to have this drug use a little more widespread? available via your doctor? Because in the case of Steve here in part five, it was almost miraculous what he's had. What should we know? What's the name, name of that drug? First of all, what should we know about it? Thank you for asking. Um, mm -hmm. The medication is called naltrexone mm -hmm. and it's a medication that's available. It helps to block the opioid receptor, which is one of the things that can get triggered with people who um, particularly have positive responses to alcohol. Um, when they drink alcohol, they might get the positive response that that made them feel good. Um, uh -huh. Part of it through the opiate receptor, among many other receptors in the brain that mm -hmm. then say, Ooh, that, was good. I want to get more of that and more of that and more of that. Um, and so this medication actually helps to block that medicate, block that feeling. And the great thing is it doesn't make people sick. I think one of the medic medications kind of get a bad rap sometimes because um, the first medication that was around and the only medication that was around for a while is something called disulfiram or antabuse. And it was such that when you drank, when you um, took the medication and, you, and then you drank alcohol, it actually made you, made you feel horrible. Oh. So what do people do? They tend to just 
not take the medicine anymore. The nice thing about naltrexone is that it does not have any of those effects. And in fact, some people say that when they're drinking while they're taking the medication, it actually helps to stop that positive cycle of, huh, when I drink, I don't really get these, I don't really get those positive responses. I don't feel bad, Mm -hmm. but I don't get such um, euphoric effects to want to drink more and more. And so it kind of stops that cycle of addiction. Mm -hmm. I think it's such an important medication because it is probably safer than any other medication that any of us prescribe. I prescribe tons of medications for high blood pressure, for diabetes, for other types of pain, uh, chronic pain disorders. Naltrexone is super safe medication and and very effective, yet only one to 2% of people that struggle with alcohol use disorder have ever taken the medication, maybe even been offered the medication, um, which is really staggering. I think part of the reason also that, that Mr. Alcorn touches on in his in his article is that it's because I think people put alcohol use disorders into a separate category of disease, unlike ALS, where there's like he's like he said that, the, you know, like a lot of advertising on how to, you know, in, increase treatment. There's a little bit of there are a lot of other um, factors and um, stigma that play around with alcohol use disorder such that people don't necessarily want to advertise it and try to improve and try to improve treatment. And so I think that's one of the reasons why doctors also may not necessarily think about prescribing a medication. Um, There's a whole sense that it's a moral failing rather than actually a medical uh, disease that should be treated just like any other medical disease. Mm. Even if people relapse, we do lots of things that we try to, you know, treat to prevent relapse as well. So just putting that in the realm is super important. Interesting. And I was just going to interject, you know, I think what Dr. Wei has just put her finger on is one of the most important challenges for our state and any state to address this problem, which is stigma, um, Mm. shame, Uh, because it affects not only, of course, how people access treatment, how doctors think about it, but it affects how lawmakers think about this. When we're talking about um, the disparities that we see in our state and the preconceptions people have, uh, for example, about a predisposition towards alcoholism among native people. You know, that's not only untrue, but it, it allows us in a kind of pejorative way to put the responsibility on someone else. And if you really step back and think that an alcohol disorder is an illness like asthma, like high blood pressure, like diabetes, um, and you sort of set that realm of objectivity around it, then you realize, oh, of course, we as a society would want to do everything we can to make access to the appropriate treatments easier for everyone, but also to make a safer environment where we have less of that disease emerging in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look around and you see New Mexico has much higher rates of alcohol disorder and, and, and the consequences of it than other places, it forces us to recognize that we, we don't have a safe environment when it comes to alcohol right now. Um, it's much more unsafe than any other state. And so we really have a collective responsibility to take the steps to, to make it better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Let me get Representative Ferrari in here on a couple of points here on, on policy and attitude. Um, what really came out in these pieces, Representative, is there's a good bit of fatalism out there in New Mexico about alcohol. People just assume we're always going to drink. There's always going to be drunk people. There's always going to be alcohol besotting everything. And, and as Ted mentions, you know, in the final article, we're going to need a whole, quote unquote whole of society approach here. How can we gin that up here in New Mexico? You know, like we did back with the Craven situation where everybody you know, sat up and just got it, or the old Gallup mayor who threatened to put up those billboards. 
calling it the drunk capital of the United States and the big march to, to Santa Fe, which really did get a lot of things going. How do, we, how do we get that whole of society approach going here in New Mexico in your view? Um, I think by involving a lot of the different uh, committees and the governor working together that, mm -hmm. um, you know, we need to make sure that um, we realize how impacted our state is and that all the funding and things we try to do for our kids, for education and childcare and, you know, um, put into cords all the funding, a lot of this isn't going to change unless we get to the root cause of a lot of it, mm -hmm. um, which is, um, you know, alcoholism and to insert the, you know, different recommendations that a task force can come together and say this, this, and this, just like we did in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. We knew how to reduce DWI. We wanted to get people into the system to get the help they needed. And we had uh, community DWI groups that included behavioral health and uh, the Department of Health. Um, all of the different aspects, the courts, um, on a team to address in the local communities. So we need to um, kind of uh, beef those up and get them more activated again, uh, raise the alcohol tax. That is one of the, as uh, Mr. Alcorn was saying, is really important and uh, effective. Um, you know, uh, get doctors to start prescribing, you know, to their patients, do the screening and then prescribe what's needed. Um, and we knew, need um, school-based programs, you know, like for kids to understand how, uh, like media literacy, where um, they are being targeted by the industry and made um, vulnerable and how to combat that. Um, you know, there's just um, a lot of things that I think if we if we talk about them with the importance that it is um, to our state, that we should be able to, you know, overcome what the lobbyists are all saying. Uh, you can't do that. You know, it's going to impact businesses. Mm -hmm. um, we have a high saturation because we've made it available. You know, alcohol going to the doors and being delivered, or right. you know, even having more restaurants. Um, being able to serve, you know, the servers and the training that we implemented back then, um, we need to make sure that that is being enforced. Mm -hmm. Ted, I'll just say, you, you know, the, mm -hmm. the tendency, unfortunately, has been not to take the steps towards a more responsible, safer environment. It's to take a step backwards. I, I interviewed and talked with folks at the Department of Health. And when you look at the top seven measures that are recommended by the CDC for addressing excess alcohol use. I asked them to rate their performance. They said needs improvement or moving backwards on more than half of them. Wow. And, you know, the reality is, is this is a tough issue because there are people that oppose it. Um, I think that while a lot of the fear over some of these policies is out of misunderstanding, there are this would changes would require sacrifices on the part of people who drink and on the part of people who sell alcohol. And on the one hand, you know, I spoke to liquor store owners, bar owners uh, who said they would never want to sell a drink of alcohol if it knew they knew it was going to hurt somebody. Um, but alcohol is harming people in our state and somebody's selling. It. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you know, we are participating in a system that's harming people. And I think people need to step outside their own interests and look at what measures we can collectively take to address this problem.
Ted, one, of the, people... one of the points you made, uh, go ahead, doctor. Oh, okay. in there. Yep. I was just thinking that um, there's also um, a taking advantage of population. So most of the tribal lands have prohibition of alcohol right. and then outlets will come up in, around the borders and um, be available. And then you see people drinking, you know, out in the public because they're not by their homes. So they've traveled in. Um, so there's a lot of that going on as well. And some more help, I think, to some of the tribes to fight some of those outlets coming so close to their borders would be also be helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. And Ted, I was just about to ask one, I'm glad that Dr. Venner got that bit in there as she helps the question. In your point of view, what does whole of society mean here in New Mexico? I mean, who needs to, obviously everybody needs to be in the game, but somebody needs to lead, of course, like anything else in life. Is that a big missing piece here? I spoke with a lot of the scientific experts nationwide and folks who worked as the state epidemiologists and alcohol epidemiologists of the state for a long time. Mm -hmm. And with a doubt, without a doubt, you know, the knowledge is there. We're, there's a pretty good understanding of the policy tools that any state that wanted to be ahead of this should start implementing. And historically, the, the state has not been led by governors that listen to that science. Mm -hmm. There have been some exceptions, certainly. The state really did tackle DWI, as Representative Farina as well. Um, but uh, according to former state epidemiologist Michael Landon, who I spoke with, you know, he, he took some of these policy measures to the governor's staff and wanted to advocate for them in the legislature, and they shut him down. Um, so absolutely, we need political leadership, but I think we also need leadership in civil society. When you look around at the progressive organizations or organizations that are looking out for the well-being and health of, of our citizens, you don't see a lot of them making alcohol policy a part of their platforms. And I think that that is, you know, we have a lot of problems to deal with this state. It's not like people are looking, searching for new things to address, but this is so enveloping. It's an issue that touches on violence, on the safety of kids, you know, on the economic well-being of our state, um, because of course it saps billions of dollars from our state. Um, I think that there's a reason for a lot of organizations to get involved, and I hope that their leadership start to think about their role in this. Mm -hmm. Representative, is the cost that's pointed out by Ted's work uh, a leverage point in the legislature to, to have some things move? Because it's costing all of us this alcohol problem here. Oh, it's amazing. I think it's over $800 million. Uh, dollars a year. I mean, that's an old estimate I've heard before. Right. Um, and, you know, if it's only 20% of our population is drinking 75% of the alcohol, we know who to target. We can um, look at, you know, what retailers are selling a lot, have uh, tax and rev as was suggested in uh, the great lineup of things we need to do by Mr. Alcorn. Um, there are people who care about their family, their friends, and maybe they can't do it by themselves. It's going to take a, you know, a village for all of us to do what we can. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that if people start talking to their elected officials, you know, it's um, for all house members, we're up for reelection. Um, and then also to their senators and send messages to the governor as she's campaigning um, throughout the state that this is something that's really important and really can save money and lives mm -hmm. and and victims. You know, there's, you know, so many victims that um, not just from DWI crashes, but, um, you know, for all the other domestic violence, sexual assault and 
children's success in life. It's hard so, to put a cost on stress, but it's a real thing. Absolutely, right. no question. Uh, Representative, one more question, then I have a couple final questions for the docs. Um, the liquor lobby, is it as big, as powerful as we think it is, or has it been the situation that we've just never had really sort of a draft in the other direction, so to speak, the will of the people behind some representatives? And do you see that changing a little bit in, in the fight against, not against the liquor industry, you're not against them, but you know what I mean, you, you want to find some, some middle ground here. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, they are powerful. They have a lot of money mm -hmm. um, that they um, can sway legislators. But I have faith that there's a lot of new legislators who go beyond right. what uh, lobbyist pressure might be and can do the right thing. They spend a lot of money here, as Mr. Alcorn pointed out in his piece. There's no doubt on that. Uh, Dr. Venner uh, and, uh, and also Dr. Way, I want you to, to get in on this one, too. Just real simple, but I, I think it's a powerful way to look at this. What, what do we not know about getting over addiction? What, what are we missing here? Folks who are, have not been through it or not been with a family member or a loved one that's been through it. How hard is it? You know, how much relapse can you anticipate? How hard is this actually to do? Uh, this is an excellent question. And I think um, I love the way Dr. Way was forming it, um, and also Dr. or Ted Alcorn, that it's similar to other chronic conditions that need to be managed. And so um, we think like, oh, one treatment episode done. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and then people get so upset and and discouraged when um, maybe they do go back to drinking or using other substances. And that should just be uh, that's pretty common in, you know, with anything. If somebody has diabetes and their sugar gets out of control, they don't stop treating them or like kick them out of the house or anything, right? If there's symptoms of drinking or using, you need more treatment, you need more support and help. So I think this addressing the idea of stigma is really important to bring the families on board, help them understand like this is a long-term process. This, um, you know, people struggle and they might have long periods of sobriety and then something else might happen and they end up uh, going back to it. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, just getting everyone to support people, strengthen relationships, use compassion, um, support them in their sobriety and treatment. Um, it is incredibly difficult because the brain changes, right? The more you put a substance in, the more your brain tries to adapt to that. And um, those pathways get pretty um, strong. So it's it can be quite challenging. And um, one of my studies was on Native Americans who had resolved alcohol use disorder, which is another thing that we don't talk about much, right? Mm -hmm. Plenty of Native Americans have overcome alcohol use disorder and other substances. So learning from those success stories. Um, and now I forgot what I was going to say about that. It was a good so point anyway. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Dr. Wade, do you have a thought on that too? Yeah. Absolutely. I think mm -hmm. those are, are the, those are fantastic points that Dr. Venner just said, you know, that mm -hmm. if, if, and you know, we as doctors, we get trained and we want, we get trained because we want to help people. We want people to get better. And it's frustrating. We are frustrated when someone comes to the emergency department for the 10th time that month um, with, with struggling with alcohol. When, when, you know, we say, didn't, didn't I tell them to stop drinking? You know, and it's, and as Dr. Venner is saying that, you know, it just like any other medical problem um, when if if there is a relapse as if someone's blood pressure goes up well I as a doctor gosh I have about 
30 different medications I can try. And so I just, you know, the, and, and to me, I'm like, okay, great. Let's just try a different medication, a different medication. And uh, it's a different approach sometimes that we, that we have with alcohol use disorder to think, is it my fault? Is it the, mm-hmm. the, the patient's fault? You know, what can we all, and it really, it's all of us working together mm-hmm. as a team to try to really treat, um, the, treat uh, the, the medical problem. And just because someone comes into the emergency department for the 10th time doesn't mean that we can't, con- we don't continue to try to find other medications that could help them. If naltrexone didn't work, there are, mod- other, uh, there are other options. There are other programs that we can try to help refer patients to. But I think some of this truly is a, is a failing of the medical community as well to not train us to have the tools to be able to help people. And thus we then get frustrated and just kind of throw up our hands and might blame the patient. Mm. So I think it's so important for the medical community as well to take some responsibility for getting the appropriate training to have the tools that we need to be able to, and not just medications, learning about motivational interviewing, learning about more effective ways to communicate with our patients, to be able to really understand some of their motivations and really get to the underlying reason why they might be struggling with alcohol in the first place. Dr. Wei, where does uh, compassion fit in, like for the rest of us, not necessarily those in the medical profession like you and Dr. Venner, but for us who are everyday folks just trying to help our fellow men, how, how big is compassion in this fight? I, I will say that, you know, as a, as a doctor who does see patients relapse over and over again, it, it is hard sometimes as, and I am just someone who is seeing someone for, a f- you know, 10, 20 minutes every few weeks, you know, it's, it, I can't imagine, um, or I can, you know, having seen, having had family and friends, it's so hard to live with somebody who struggles with alcohol use disorder. Right. And it's hard to then also feel like you want to be there and support the person, but then not feel responsible if they if they are still struggling or if they don't want to get the help. Um, and it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I guess it, compassion for the patient, but compassion for ourselves as well, mm. as family and friends that are going through this to understand that it is not easy for us to, to go through this. It is not our fault that the patients are that that the the person who's struggling is struggling it is multifactorial and to not blame ourselves and to not blame the patient and to just work as a team all together to try to think about moving forward mm-hmm. um so having compassion for for ourselves as well sure ted alcorn i'll give you the last word here of course uh, you wrote the series seven part it's really quite amazing i i I'm in new mexico in depth we should make that clear that's where you can find it what do you want people to come away with from this series? What, what's the gut feeling you want folks to have after they read your pieces here? I think it comes back to the point you started this all with, that you know we really have an enormous problem in plain sight uh, that we've kind of ignored. Uh, if you think COVID-19 has been a big deal, you should know that alcohol killed more working age New Mexicans in 2020 than COVID did, right? Mm. So this is something that should animate a big public policy response. Um, and, and although, of course, we can look at the alcohol that someone uses in terms of their individual behaviors, we should really think about, you know, the collective environment that we've created, or that we're a part of as a state, and take a lot of, I think, optimism in the fact that there's a lot of signs to suggest that there are steps that we can take to be a leader in, in reversing that precipitous climb. Good stuff there, Ted. I want to thank you very much. Like I said, this is an amazing series. I encourage everyone to read it and and really think about it. Not just read it and, you know, oh, that was nice, but really think about the world we're living in in New Mexico and all those around us. That alcohol is so pervasive here. It's just (laughs) bigger than any of us could even probably as, as, you know, regular citizens understand it. So we appreciate you all for 
giving us some insight on this. Dr. Camilla Venner, she's an associate professor of clinical psychology at UNM, and of course, Dr. Jenny Wei, an internal medicine physician at Gallup Indian Medical Center, and of course, State Representative Joanne Ferrari for Dona Anda County. Thank you all so much. It's an important discussion, and perhaps at some point down the road, Ted, if there's any follow-up with this, we'd love to help you out with that here at New Mexico PBS to get the word out that folks might need to understand a little bit more about this. So we're at your disposal here, certainly. But for all of us, please, absolutely. Um, just real quick, there is hope. There are, you know, important things that we can do. We did it in the 90s. Yep. We did it in uh, 2005 through eight, And then we've seen a slight stagnation, if not an uptick. So it's just time again to... Um, put the brakes on this and to um, go forward with a lot of good initiatives that will work together comprehensively. And um, we, we can do this. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. And we'll see you next time. Thank you all. Thank you for having us. Thank you to that roundtable group, especially Mr. Alcorn for making himself available after that series with New Mexico In-Depth. I also want to thank Trip Jennings. He's the executive director at New Mexico In-Depth. He reached out to me leading up to their rollout of that series to see if we could work together to help share this conversation with a wider audience. I was thrilled at the opportunity and I'm grateful for his work organizing this group of experts and for allowing us to be a part of this important issue. Stay with New Mexico and focus the podcast for more conversations and discussions like that one. And when I say that you won't find them anywhere else, I really mean it. The nature of our program allows us more time to explore key issues like alcohol in a much deeper way than any other news organization, really. And I promise you that we'll keep doing everything we can to bring you those conversations on the issues that are impacting New Mexicans. As always, thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, please check out our show Friday nights at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. If that doesn't work for you, we always repost it on our YouTube channel so you can watch it there too. We split up individual segments so you don't have to watch the whole show at a time. It's really easy to use, so check that out. We also have Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages, so look for us there too. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, August 22nd, 2022. This is New Mexico In Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.